Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we'll talk about the famous show about nothing, Seinfeld, with Jennifer Cation Armstrong, author of Seinfeldia. That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz and Vulture hey. TV... Oh, hey, Sorry. Matt. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going straight straight on to, to Jen, but hey, Matt, how you doing? Matt is coming to us from Cincinnati today, actually. <laughs> um, and we also have Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney with us. Hey, Jen. Hello, Newman. <laughs> it's just too tempting, I know. I know, yeah. And we're so excited to have Jennifer here with us today. Thanks Jennifer, for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So you, you've you been working on this book for a few years now, mm-hmm. is that correct? And mm-hmm. it's... This behind-the-scenes look at how Seinfeld came together, its legacy, with, and it has some really just fascinating backstories. Like, and you, you've you've written a book before about about the Mary Tyler Moore Show, Mary Lou and Rhoda and Ted. Correct. And I'm curious, you know, what, why Seinfeld next? What what inspired that decision? I mean, honestly, if you write books about television, which is a small little niche, honestly. Um, only so many shows hold up to book treatment. Um, people's favorite thing to do. I mean, I only I had wrote, written the one book before, and then everybody loved to like at cocktail parties be like, "Do Gilmore Girls," like they, they you know, like, <laughs> everyone do had it whatever. There. Um, do the OC, and I'm like, eh, that's a cute idea, but no. Um, like most shows, I can love, love, love a show, but it doesn't mean that it gets 350 pages. You know, um, Seinfeld's just so interesting. Like in this era when. We're so into TV. I think it's the first or one of the first that kind of had that feeling to it of the the way we watch now, the obsessive, you know, pick it apart, write about your feelings every week. The New York newspapers at the time, you know, by the time I was going off the air, were like running f- my favorite fax polls about – it's very 90s – fax polls about like – is it better or worse than last season? How is this? How is this episode? You know, in mm-hmm. comparison to other episodes. So I think it really shows kind of our first foray into this obsessive TV watching that we do today. Yeah, no, that is interesting. I think I don't, and I don't think people talk about it that way because for so long we've just been doing that with dramas that you can kind of forget how people became obsessed with Seinfeld and this kind of very you know, detailed way. Yeah, it, 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 you know, only certain shows allow them or lend themselves to that. I think most of the time it's dramas. Most of the time it's geeky dramas, mm-hmm. you know, Game of Thrones, Lost, that sort of thing, because they have mythologies and stuff to talk about aside from, you know, if you watch a normal sitcom, there's not a lot to say about it often besides like, here were some of the good jokes, right. you know. Um, but Seinfeld was layered and had these catchphrases and kind of did in a weird way, had a little bit of a mythology. That's probably not exactly the right word, but like, hello, Newman, you know, like right. any of those recurring characters, you know, all of that stuff. It was there was so much there that I think it gave people something to to obsess over and talk about the next day in a really unique way. I was going to say mythology seems like the right word. And and another word that jumped into my head as you were talking about this was world building. Yes, exactly. You know, they really did. They'd created a world and that and that that New York street set that they shot the show on. It's it's this sort of self-enclosed universe in a way like like the town of Deadwood or the hospital on ER or something like that. Like it's supposed to represent the entirety of New York, but it really feels like a, it feels like a small town because they keep running, just randomly running into people. And, you know, you do a certain amount of that in in New York, but not in the same way that they do on Seinfeld. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the best evidence of this is the finale, which I know is opening a can of worms in itself. (laughs) But for now, I'll just say the fact that they could bring back that parade of recurring characters that we loved and they each had their own story and catchphrase and reason to be mad at our main characters um that that's really that world in a nutshell it used to be and i i noticed this to sort of hilarious effect when i was doing my mary tyler moore show book 
there was not the same attention to that because people people couldn't record it. Um, it was sort of like they they assumed you just watch it and leave it alone. Like there's Rhoda had a sister in the Mary Tyler Moore show who just disappears never to reappear, including on her own television show, Roto, and she has a totally different <laughs> sister then. Um, who, and they never mentioned the other one again, who got married, I think, or something on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Um, so that would never fly on Seinfeld. And in fact, because it's so popular in reruns, when they did recast um, Jerry's dad, for instance, mm-hmm. they they couldn't reshoot some of the stuff, but then when they they also recast... George's dad, they they did reshoot some things f- for the reruns so that it was consistent. So you didn't have to see two different dads and be like, why are there two different dads? Um, so they really were like kind of anticipating this obsessive rewatching. Hey, how is it that they were able to get away with that? Because in the 80s and 90s, network bosses rebelled against that kind of a show where you were expected to remember what happened. Yeah. I mean, you know, th- Seinfeld had a famously slow start. Um, and I think that that's partly why. I mean, I don't I don't think they knew that that was specifically um, where we were going with it, but they did kind of have that general, like, we don't really get this mm-hmm. feeling and we don't think America's going to get it, but we also sort of like it. Um, so they had one episode that was on in on July 5th. One episode. That's when your shot. book was published. Yeah, that's why that, that, we, we did notice that. <laughs> that was not a coincidence. Um, so... They, they had one episode that ran on July 5th. We all know that that's not a great sign for your show. Like, we have, we'll have we put your one episode on the day after a national holiday in the middle of summer. is not great. Then the next year, there were four episodes in the summer. Then the next year, there were 13 episodes. And then the next year, they finally got a full season. So um, they were real careful with this. And it wasn't until they knew they really, really had something that people, for some reason, that was beyond network executives' grasp, liked it. And that's when they really ran with it. One of the things that I thought was so interesting in your book, Jennifer, is, is the degree to which the network left um, Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David alone, and, and specifically in regard to the episode The Contest, which, as you talk about, and which we all know, was was kind of a turning point moment for Seinfeld to do, and for TV in general, to do an entire episode about masturbation uh, and never say the word, and to get that on the air. And, and the fact that, as you described, NBC didn't object to any of it. They were like, yeah, that's good. Go ahead. And you would think that would be a huge battle, and it wasn't. Yeah, I guess by the time they got to that point, it had been so long, and they were on an upswing. They just went, all right, this is funny. Let's do it. Um, One of my favorite things is there did seem to be this strange rivalry between – I guess not strange, but this – the sibling rivalry between Friends and Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Friends producers complained, you know, that Seinfeld was always getting away with it. was like the older brother who got to get could get away with anything. And then, like, Friends wasn't even allowed to show a condom wrapper or something. Um, <laughs> so they were always mad. But then, you know, Seinfeld was always like, I don't know why everybody likes this Friends show. They just ripped us off, blah, blah, blah. So there was this definite, like, rivalry. And, they, and that really, that. the masturbation episode really irritated the, the friends people because they were not allowed to do similar things. But as you mentioned, they never say the word masturbation in that episode. I think that's what makes it funny. Um, it is. Yeah. That's the it, genius of it. It like true. If you think about them just walking around going like we are in a masturbation contest. Who is winning now? It wouldn't be funny. Totally. It'd be gross. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I Years and years ago, I, I was at a party, a Fox like Christmas party or something, and I and I happened to be standing at the buffet table with this guy, who, as it turns out, was the head of uh, standards and practices, the censor for Fox. And I said, uh, "So if you're the censor for Fox, what do you do?" And he <laughs> laughed and he said, "You know, you're only the 480th person <laughs> to make that joke." But then he told me, and he said that most people who make network television, they know. Um, they pretty much know where the line is. The question is, how far over that line can they get without getting their wrists slapped? And so everybody's always in competition. And he said that he he always respected the shows that knew where the line was and knew that they could go a little bit over it. And that he, you know, the, basically the, the shows that seemed like they, they were paying attention to what the standards were at the network. And they were trying, and, and it was almost like a game. And he said that he usually would say yes to things that were pretty clearly over the line, but were clever. Hmm. 
And and I said, so in a way, you're kind of like, it's almost like you're offering them notes without offering them notes. Like, And he said, yeah, that's true. And if they tried to go really egregiously too far, I would just say, are you kidding me, guys? Come on, don't you have any respect for me? Come back. Do it, do it again a different way and come back. And the contest episode of Seinfeld seems like a perfect example of that sort of that sort of thing, because, like, you know, no no previous sitcom had done a, an entire episode about a masturbation contest, but it's, like, it's funny. It's not... Vul- it, it, I asked him, I said, what's the line... What's the difference between funny and vulgar? And he said, if it's funny, it's not vulgar. <laughs> Which I thought was an interesting formulation. I'd never thought of it that way. I love that, and I'm going to remember it forever and probably use it in interviews in the future. That's so... <laughs> like, because that... It just... it That totally explains this particular situation. Um, I do also think it's... Pr- the It's particularly extraordinary that um, Elaine participated as well um it's that's that's what really takes it over the top it's super important yeah and they did actually talk about um the writers told me that they did actually consider not having her do it um because they're all dudes and Mm -hmm. they had the exact reaction that the dudes have on the screen which is like she's a girl it's different um they did give her odds right um (laughs) but they didn't anticipate jfk jr being in her aerobics (laughs) class um so that's a great bit. I, and that's what they said is they said the big thing was, OK, if Elaine's going to do this, we have to work. They they really wanted to make sure it was like a good, solid reason that she was out. They knew they wanted like it's only going to be funny that she's in it if she's out before one of the guys. She can't win this thing or else that's not cool. Totally. Um, so they really wanted to come up with. And I just like what a brilliant, perfect thing that they can rope JFK Jr. into this. And it's kind of like weirdly plausible. If you live in New York, yeah. like that could happen. Oh, and in an aerobics class? In, aerobics, yeah. in an aerobics <laughs> class of the 90s that, you know, how much more 90s the do you get? The of its day. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, like like that would be like, I don't know, like Ryan Reynolds being in your spin class. Exactly. Like that could happen, you know. You caved? It's over? You're out? Oh, my God, the queen is dead. I figured you'd cruise, at least through the spring. What happened? It was, uh, John John. Oh, John. But you made it through the day before. Yeah, but yesterday he told Joyce, the aerobics teacher, that he wants to meet me outside here at 9 o'clock tonight. Why outside here? Because he thinks I live here. Remember when we shared that cab? He dropped me off out in front. He's picking me up. All right, Costanza. It's you and me. And then there were two. Elaine Bennis Kennedy Jr. Can I ask you a little bit about the the writing of the show? The the, the details in the book about how the show was written are really fascinating to me because it it sounds like the vision that we have of writers' rooms on shows is that they, they're they all together. They're all together, or most of them are together, and they're throwing ideas out, and they're breaking the show, as they say, you know, coming up with what are what are the plot lines, what are the, what's the A plot, what's the B plot, what are the different beats in a scene, where are we going, all that stuff. And then maybe individual writers might go off, like an individual writer or a team might go off and quote-unquote write an episode, but then other people come in and you know, they handle things that are their specialty, and it's very regimented on a lot of these shows, but it doesn't sound like it happened that way on Seinfeld. Like, you describe it as almost like everybody's got their own little joke factory going, and somehow it's integrated at the end, and can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah, I was completely fascinated by this, and in fact, there was a point, I just realized, like, it just this just popped in my head that there was a point where I was in a room with a couple of the writers, and they they had a whiteboard, like, I was in their office that they work in now and they actually started like writing on the whiteboard to exp- to show me how it would work um which was kind of amazing um and it sounds so stressful like like you said so normally everybody comes in the writers room and like yeah you get credit for a certain episode cuz you technically are the one who like type it into the computer in order um but it's pretty <laughs> well thought out by that time instead yeah they were each almost working like little freelancers even though they had a shared office space um <laughs> And they had to have four storylines approved. So they had to have a storyline for each character and they'd have to like catch Larry and Jerry. That sounded like one of the most stressful parts. They had to like get them. And, you know, these are busy guys. Um, Get them to listen to them and they'd have to pitch their idea. And, you know, of course, also often they'd be like, nah, it's not good. Go find something else. 
So they'd have to get one for each character. Then they'd start the process of like working with Larry and Jerry a little maybe to to figure out how those four storylines are going to come together. Um, and they said something really interesting to me as a writer too that often you would then block out your story outline and you'd bring it to Larry and Jerry and they would they'd look at it and you'd think oh I have my 22 minute story they'd look at it and go they'd like kind of smash it down to like no that's like your first five minutes now go write more (laughs) Um, because what they just they were so good at like this economy of like they'd say like you don't need to show that scene just have somebody in the next scenes mention that that happened and move on Um, (laughs) so Part of the reason, especially as the show really gets going, it's so sort of dense and action-packed is that that's what they were doing. By the end, they really had this down. Like they knew that they could really just smash these things down. And you mentioned A-plot and B-plot. And that's this is another reason that Seinfeld feels different to us um, is that it's not A-plot, B-plot. It's A, B, C, D for the most part. Occasionally, one will be a pretty weak you know, it's like yeah. they're just worried about, I don't know, selling raincoats or something. You know, like nothing. It's a bit of shtick like uh, when Kramer gets banned from the produce shop. Exactly. Like it's not like a huge thing, but the tr- the best episodes are the ones that can bring them all to – like part of the suspense in a weird way, once you understand what Seinfeld is, is to watch and go like, how is, you know, how is the golfing going to end up with the fake marine biologisting? <laughs> and boom, there it is at the end, you know. Right, Kramer hits a golf ball into a whale's blowhole. Yep, yep, exactly. I, I mean, as, you know, as it often happens on sitcoms all across the nation, you know, that it's just like this is why it felt so unique is like they, you couldn't have a cliche if, well, if, that's true. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't thought, I hadn't thought of it that way. But, but you know, to the extent that Seinfeld could be said to have suspense, and I don't think it really ever did in the way that other mm-hmm. shows do. It's the, it, it revolves around the question of how in the hell are they going to bring all these things, all of these threads together at the end? Yeah, I mean, I can really remember that by the end of the show when they really had it down that that was how I watched the show because I'm a TV nerd. Um, I do remember this being one of one of the first shows that made me realize I was a TV nerd. So that's possibly the first where I would really watch more for that stuff mm-hmm. than like, oh, I'm just enjoying the facts of life television show. You know, um, it was really partly everybody, I think, to a large extent watched for the analytical qualities. In terms of talking about the influence that the show had on comedies that came afterward, uh, I think what you're talking about is is one of the things that we see now very commonly in comedies where there are a bunch of things coming together at the end. Veep does that a lot. Mm-hmm. I think Arrested Development used to do that. Um, I think that's another way that, that Seinfeld had a huge impact on shows that came later. Yeah, for sure. 30 Rock, I feel like a lot of the, – there's a, like a wackiness to it in mm-hmm. a way. Like not, you know, not traditional, not like I Love Lucy wackiness, but like these crazy things and then they do come together. And of course like Veep and Silicon Valley are both um, – run by and like staffed by a lot of Seinfeld alums and I think right. you can you can really you can really see it in a great way. You talk to all the writers on Seinfeld. What I mean what can you talk a little bit about, you know, what they were like mm-hmm. and their view of Larry David and what he was like as a showrunner? They're so fun. I mean, unsurprisingly, they're really funny and tell great stories because they are writers on one of our greatest sitcoms of all time. Um, They were really open and happy to talk. I'm sure, you know, I I know that there were people who said no and like – you know, that it has to be a little self-selecting that probably the people who had the best time on the show are the people who (laughs) want to reminisce about it with me. But, um, you know, they – Definitely also, though, said, you know, a lot of them, very stressful, borderline traumatic experience at times Um, when it was at its heights, really, really stressful to be on the show that everyone is like watching to make sure is still good Mm -hmm. every week. And, you know, um, a couple of them actually said, you know. I didn't want to break my favorite show. I, they came as fans. Um, Andy Robin, who wrote the Junior Mint episode, which is one of the most famous and was instant an instant hit with people. People loved it. People were talking about it the next day. He still to this day is a little traumatized. Like he's still sure that that is not a good episode. <sighs> Um, wow. He really Which is crazy to me because so it's bizarre. so great. He did one of my favorites. Did not like it. He did. He thought it was too 
crazy. Over the balcony, bounced off some respirator thing into the patient. What do you mean, into the patient? Into the patient, literally. Into the hole? Yes. The hole. Didn't they notice it? No. How could they not notice it? Because it's a little mint. It's a junior mint. What did they do? They sealed him up with the mint inside. They left the junior mint in him? Yes. He really liked it better, and I understand this, when Seinfeld was really focused on stuff that could really happen in your everyday life. And he just felt like it went off the rails and it was too nuts. I think it's one of the show's turning points. Um, Among other things, my favorite thing about that episode is that Jerry says – Let's go watch them cut this fat bastard up. <laughs> yeah. um, it's it's probably one of his most naturally delivered lines. Um, we all we all know, and he does too, that he is not like the greatest actor of all time. Um, but he was fantastic to watch on the show because he's playing himself, and you just could feel the. I, I love watching him say it. All right, all right. Just let me finish my coffee. I'm gonna watch him go slice his fat bastard up. He looks like, like he's he was gonna start to laugh. He's like, he's like, I'm gonna say this, and I can't believe it, and I'm gonna see if America still likes me afterwards. And they did. To me, it was like also the time when Jerry was allowed to start getting a little darker. And what I think, I don't, I have no reason to believe that I know anything about him as a real person. But I think it allowed him to be a little more of himself and not have to be such to the like, I'm the lead of the show, so everyone should like me. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's good. I think it's good for the show. Well, you don't, you know, you don't get to be Jerry Seinfeld without being ruthless. True. Exactly. You know, like that's, I mean, that's true of pretty much anybody who's at the level that he was at when that show was on the air. And, and wasn't that around the period where I feel like there was a stretch of like one or even two seasons where um, literally every episode, Jerry's plot was about him trying to break up with some girl. Seriously. No, I mean, that's, it's such a funny, such a funny thing. And we all just sort of like went with it. I'm not saying he shouldn't be a ladies man, but like every week there was just some new, insanely beautiful woman who was about to be really famous. Like it's just a parade of future famous women. It was. A lot of them got their own sitcoms. Yeah, like Deborah Messing's there. Amanda Peet. Amanda Peet. um, Kristen Davis. Connie Britton. I think she might have. She's somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah, she is in there. Yeah, um, Terry Hatcher was in the episode yeah. you were just talking about. Terry Hatcher, um, Lauren Graham. Right, um, it's right. it's just insane. It's actually one of my favorite things about watching reruns is like every, every time you go through another cycle, if you can like if you watch them in order over and over again, you'll like it's like there will be someone new who just got famous in the last year, <laughs> and now now you find them in there. Um, and, you know, there's other people, too. There's, like, Brian Cranston being awesome as the dentist. <laughs> You're an anti-dentite. Oh, I love anti-dentite. <laughs> that's a great one. Yeah. That's a great I, one. I, that's one of my favorites. And, you know, Peter Melman, <laughs> who wrote that episode, told me he was really bummed. That's I believe it's also yada yada. I could. I, this is a problem all the time when you talk about these episodes because it's so crazy, the stuff that goes together. But he was – I remember that he told me he thought, like, anti-dentite really should have caught on more than it did. Um, yes. <laughs> whereas Although, others, you know, other things like his, he he did write about yada yada as well, and he's like, I had no idea that that was going to become. That was a good such one. A the an- anti dentite didn't catch on, but what did I think from that same episode is him saying you converted to Judaism just for the jokes. For the jokes, I know. I that's <laughs> I love that. Concept. I've actually used that. I actually used that in a in a film review of the Quentin Tarantino movie, The Hateful Eight. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> To talk about how, like, you know, he took this sudden sharp right turn into, like, historical dramas. And right. I think it was just so he could use the N-word without getting called out. That's but he so was anyway. True. So That's so <laughs> true. It really, it is like becoming Jewish for the jokes. The structure of it evolved, too, though. I mean, you go into this in the book. And, and you know, anybody who watches the show can get a sense of this. As they're, you know, even if they're not aware of the of how shows are made and how, how sitcoms are structured, you can see that the earlier episodes are, <clears throat> they're more lifelike. They're more sort of mm-hmm. low-key. The pace is slower. There's not as much plot. And then you get to the end, and it's like it's almost like The Simpsons, except it's live action. Absolutely. I've been there's saying so much it's, going on, and it's, it's so cartoon. ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a cartoon, especially by the end. And there's a really, really good reason for it, which is Larry David left. Um, and that's when it starts to get more of that crazy, wacky, cartoony feel 
um, which I think is a little more Jerry's personality mm. coming out. I always think they were such a great balance, the two of them. They're really perfect together because Jerry, like, chills Larry's edges out a little bit and, um, you know, vice versa. So they that's – once he left, he wasn't there to kind of ground it anymore in his vast cynicism. I mean, the Susan – Death. Susan death. I want to ask you about that, too. <laughs> I mean, it's weird to say I kind of like the Susan death. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I didn't realize until I was writing this book that that was Larry's last episode, which oh. feels really right, doesn't it? So you're like, yeah. I see what you're doing there, sir. It's- he was like, that was a mic drop. Talk about pushing their boundaries. They were like, what What have we not tried that could really irritate people? And hey, let's kill somebody and not care about it. How did it happen? Apparently the uh, glue in the wedding invitations was uh, toxic. (laughs) Well, that's weird. So I guess you're not getting married. (laughs) But. Yeah. Well, now I'm engaged. Yeah. Well, I thought we'd both be getting married. Hey, what can I tell you? All right. Come on, let's uh, get some coffee. (laughs) We had a pack! That was an episode that I, you know, I was a television, I had been a television critic for a few years at that point. You know, I'm kind of dating myself here, but uh, when that episode happened, it was very, it was a big deal. It was a really big deal, and and nothing like that had happened on a popular sitcom. There had been other sitcoms where things like that had happened, like, you know, that that, uh, Dabney Coleman uh, sitcom Buffalo Bill, where his character was just an unregenerate jerk, and, like, things like that might have happened on the Larry Sanders show, but that's that's HBO, and it's just not the same thing as when it happened on a show that was as popular as Seinfeld. And I always thought that that, like, in a way, like, in, in addition to all of the other um, influential things that Seinfeld did, all of the important things that Seinfeld did, as just aesthetically, one of the most important was it sort of got a mass audience used to the idea that characters don't have to be don't have to be likable as long as they're interesting. Like all four of these characters were incredibly selfish people, and and I know, and you alluded earlier to uh, this the 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 finale being kind of a still kind of a controversial in its way for a sitcom but i really like i liked it because like it it really did acknowledge that the entire time that they weren't just a bunch of jerks they really knew what they were doing they knew who these characters were and how unpleasant they could be and yet at the end they're still they seem almost like defiant or unrepentant you're right especially those last couple scenes where they seem like eh, now we're in prison um yeah i think i i'm a fan of the finale too i'm a defender of the finale i think I understand why people hated it at the time. It's all context. You know, it's like there was so much hype. People, I don't know what they thought was going to happen in that finale, but the thing that happened was not what they wanted. That's all they knew. Um, you know, it, it, it it's another way that it's a forerunner to the way we watch television now, though, too. Mm-hmm. Like, finales weren't like that all the time. Now, every other week, I feel like people are freaking out online about some finale that's going to, you know, oh, my God, parenthood is ending. Let's all freak out. Um, All four of us (laughs) who watch it, you know, Um, like this was this really had so much hype. And I I think short of telling you, like, the secret to life or something, it was going to disappoint people. But instead, he went the other way. He really went for it. You know, he really went for something and a statement. And I think some people took it a little as like a middle finger like haha you've been watching terrible people for <laughs> the last the last 9 years and I tricked you into it um but I'm I'm a fan of it um watching it away from the hype I'm yeah. I'm a huge fan I mean it actually makes a lot of sense when you think about it is the thing it's funny to think that people like had that reaction considering the show they were watching. Right. Well, that's yeah. what's interesting. I mean, I remember watching the finale. And we, we A bunch of us had like a Seinfeld finale viewing party, as so many people did, because it was, like you said, a really big hyped up deal. And I remember being disappointed uh, at the time. And I think, you know, it, it was very faithful to what the idea of the show was, what they did at the end. But I think 
the weird thing about Seinfeld is that as, as despicable as the characters can be, you came to feel very warmly about them. And I think, and you kind of talk about this in the book a little bit in terms of the things that have happened since and the way we talk about the show and quote the show. Like there is a warm feeling that you have, even when you're quoting these horrible things that they've <laughs> said and done. And so I think that that's what was kind of a strange thing is that even though you knew that that the show had all these dark undertones and uh, that ending it the way they did made sense from a uh, being true to the spirit of it, like you, you still felt so warmly about it that it just felt right. like an incongruous kind of feeling. And I think a part of that is – is is due to the actors and what yeah. they bring to the role. And you mentioned, Jennifer, in the book, like I think at one point Jason Alexander is talking about when he was getting the scripts and it's just all dialogue with no direction on how to behave. And they kind of had to bring a lot of the character yeah. themselves. Yeah. So you really feel – you you really feel their personalities in a way that you 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 kind of like, even though they're ter- they're saying terrible things. Yeah, I think I mean I, I again like I never pretend to know to like know personally celebrities who I do not hang out with on a regular basis and am good friends with, but like it, I do get the impression that especially uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus and Jason Alexander have these incredibly warm personalities in real life and like all the writers were like they're amazing you know like you could just tell people really like them and I wonder if like their crazy likability is so intense that they can like it somehow balances out the terribleness of the character they're playing I mean look at Julia now on Veep she's playing (laughs) another horrible person yeah um and we still love her because she's julia you know i mean she clearly excels at kind of warming up somehow underneath Mm -hmm. these terrible these terrible characters um you know i think we relate to them on the show um one of my favorite things that the writers told me is that larry told them to um use real life stories and then have the characters do what you wish you had done in the situation, but kind of right. probably wouldn't have the guts to do because you're not a horrible person. Um, he didn't say it that way, but he just said, have them do what you wish you had done. I think because they were acting out our fantasies about what we'd like to do in those frustrating situations, what we'd like to say when the rental car agency took the reservation but didn't hold the reservation. <laughs> um, that's one of my favorites because um, I feel like that's happened to me yeah. before where you're like, why did I make a reservation? You know, um, <laughs> Like, and certainly... It's really the holding that's very It's important. the holding that's important. Um, yes. Anybody can, can hear, take a I reservation. I can hear Jerry saying that as you're talking about it. I don't understand. I made a reservation. Do you have my reservation? Yes, we do. Unfortunately, we ran out of cars. But the reservation keeps the car here. That's why you have the reservation. I know why we have reservations. I don't think you do. <laughs> if you did, I'd have a car. So you know how to take the reservation, you just don't know how to hold the reservation. And that's really the most important part of the reservation, the holding. Anybody can just take them. I love that one. You know, we all have our favorite, like, things from it. Little, We all pick, and I think it shows so much about your personality because there's so much good yes. in the show. It's it's your, your favorite lines or, or episodes or scenes are not about what is actually good on the show because there's so much. It's more about, like, what what really strikes you and you really like relate to it for some deep reason like you you too have had this this situation happen to you i was thinking about that when i was rewatching the puffy shirt episode because the puffy the puffy shirt there's actually a lot that happens and i mean there's a lot of really quotable memorable stuff that happens in that episode but one of the things i like the most is the actual mechanics of how he ends up wearing that puffy shirt because the low talker he 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 doesn't know he doesn't even know that he's saying yes to something because he can't understand that what she's saying and it just and it just suddenly occurred to me like I don't think I've ever seen that on a show before like shows they they sort of examine the same common situations over and over but the details change but it's very rare that you see a very specific situation examined that you've never seen examined on a show before and in this case it's where you have accidentally said yes to somebody and you didn't even know you were saying yes to them and now you feel obligated to, to make good on your promise it's so true. I love you know, that like, and that's too. how he ends up in that ridiculous. It looks like an outfit that like Prince would wear to the MTV Music Awards or something. <laughs> fun, fun fact: um, when I went to the um, Cyclones baseball night, where it's it's the Seinfeld night, and like you know, people come dressed as characters and stuff, um, I found this group of people who were all dressed up, and one one of the guys was wearing a puffy shirt and like 
khaki shorts, but which was funny. Um, it was a funny combination. But what I was like, where on earth did you get a puffy shirt? He was like, my friends in a Prince tribute band. No. So that was <laughs> – he was wearing his friend's shirt from the Prince tribute band. Um, and I do love that episode too. I love – like – I don't want to be a pirate. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> but I, because I feel like that's something that that would totally happen to me. Because I, I tend on the side of like, you know, I'm just going to, I don't want to like make a big deal. I'm just going to be like, oh, yeah, huh? Um, when I don't understand what somebody's saying. Larry's attitude about his characters, about his, about George in particular, but all of the characters on the show and the characters, the character he plays on Curb Your Enthusiasm is very interesting to me because as you talk about in the book, he, you know, he seems quite aware of what what a miserable bastard George is, and 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 you know the the content of the of the show, the selfishness of the the sort of self centeredness of these characters. Like obviously, they knew what they were doing. You don't have like George's fiance die from licking a poisoned envelope and him kind of shrug it off and not know what you're doing. But in interviews, I've and I've actually done one of them with him myself where. If you if you mention that the characters are selfish or that they're unlikable or that they're bad in some way, sometimes he gets defensive. Yeah, and I think it's probably because he so much of himself is is in there. Um, and the death thing, I've heard him or read him talk about the death, the Susan death thing before, and he was like, I just thought it would be interesting. It's interesting, like, do we have to always be upset when someone's dead? Sometimes we're not. We pretend we are, but we're not. I think he's just really interested in in those little corner tiny little corners of life where there there are certain things we know we're supposed to do what if we don't do them that's really his deal in a nutshell um and you know maybe he maybe he sees george as a little bit heroic like i you know he's he's flouting the conventions of of society this is you know it's that's what this is this is like this is a comedy of manners you know mm-hmm. um where no one has any where they've decided what if we don't what if we didn't do the things we're supposed to do um i mean they you know even from the very beginning they're exploring these little tiny things why why do i have to bring you know a bottle of wine to a friend's house when we go there why do we have to bring a babka and you know, go Just through bring all this trouble. And Pepsi. Right, exactly. <laughs> and that—that's what I think I hooked into with the show. And and Lord help me, in a lot of ways, I was thinking as as I was reading your book and and th- thinking about preparing for this podcast, like which of these characters do I relate to the most? Mm. And um, I really think it is George. Like I I hope I'm not as self centered and and selfish as he is, but uh, just this idea that like life is hard and why do people keep asking me to do things like those those episodes like that like the ring ding and Pepsi one like the one where they go to the movies and which you couldn't even do now because everybody would just figure it out with their cell phones right. and it wouldn't be all this you know difficulty uh, organizing things but just just trying to do the simplest thing and it's always a pain in the ass like <laughs> I, I feel like that feeling is very universal and I feel like either out loud or in my own head at least once a day I say to myself you know, we're living in a society like that sentiment. I, I relate to that very much. You know, we're living in a society. We're supposed to act in a civilized way. I think George might just be like it. Like, I think I think George might be the center of that show, which is not a surprise since he's really Larry. Um, and... I think we all feel that. That's why we love George. I love the like, – that's exactly his character. Is why is everybody always asking me to do things? Like, I just want to sit here. I feel the same way too. Like, when I had an office job, I constantly was – like, why do I have to keep going there? Why do they want me to go there all the time? Like, what is it they want from me? Um, you know, I and I, it's possible there was some – Storyline sort of like that with George, where he the Penske rem- file. Well, yeah, yeah, ex- totally the Penske <laughs> file. You're right. It's interesting in your book. There's a part where J- Jason Alexander. It, it's early on, I believe, in the show where he is kind of feeling like he is not his character isn't being focused on enough, and Elaine is getting more. Yeah, kind kind of screen time. Can yeah. you talk a little? And both of them felt that way a bit. But can you talk a little bit about that? Because like, how did it go? from him feeling that way to becoming, as you say, almost the heart of the show. Yeah, I think, I mean, it was really early on. Yeah. Um, it was actually what the, I think the real impetus for that was was specifically that they brought Julia on. So uh, the, the very first episode is there's no Elaine. Um, by the way, I don't know if you guys have watched the pilot lately. It is super weird. It's so different. Yeah. It almost, I mean, <laughs> I feel the same way when I watch 
early episodes of The Simpsons. Yeah, there's a lot of shows like that. Very different. They find themselves a little bit. Um, But I think Seinfeld was even weirder in in its early stages than The Simpsons was. Yeah, definitely. I mean, his apartment's different, like everything, but it's like a lot quieter. Mm -hmm. Um, George is giving Jerry girl advice. One of my favorite things is George trying to advise Jerry about women. Like, that's weird. (laughs) Um, So then the the network said, we're going to bring you back for these four episodes. But you need to put a woman. And I think that they were so right. If you go back and look at that pilot, um, it it is severely lacking. Women are like these sort of tangential beings, but um, like they live in the world, but they're really far away. Um, She really added a lot to it. And so I think they were right. But so I think that. It's understandable. It's a show that's barely on the air. And then now, oh, great. You're going to like I was supposed to be the sidekick. And now you're going to bring in this this character who's Jerry's ex. And then there was one episode where the pen um, where they go where Elaine and Jerry go to Miami to see his parents, which I always love when we go to Miami. Hmm. Um, And George is not is not in it. George is not going to Miami. So he that was the part that really made him nervous. And especially if you think about traditional um, sitcom trajectories, which, you know, the network tried to force on them and they resisted, thank goodness. Um, you know, you can you could see that there was the possibility that this is going to become a will they, won't they, Sam and Diane show. And suddenly the friend is maybe occasionally giving you some advice and talking to you about the girl, but that's it. And then, oh, oops, maybe the friend moves to Nebraska instead and lets them focus on their relationship. So you can see that there would be he'd be nervous. And meanwhile, Julie is the only girl. She's being written by mostly men. And, you know, that's making everybody nervous, including her. And she's thinking, like, am I going to get enough funny lines? I want to be equal to them. Um, She is – I mean, especially once they get going. I mean, I think she's extraordinarily equal to them. Um, Mm -hmm. But she was very clear from the beginning that they needed to make sure that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and once – once obviously, once it really got going, they saw that – this was this was the way it was going to be. But you can see how those two would be more in, like, competition the same way that if they were real people, they would be in competition for Jerry. Right. Whereas, like, you know, Kramer's Kramer. Like, Kramer's going to do his Kramer thing regardless. Mm-hmm. He's going to be the crazy neighbor. Um, but those two are, you know, kind of battling for first place in, in Jerry's world. Luckily, they, they remained fairly equal. It's amazing how... Like you say, the A, B, C, D plot, you kind of – it feels like equal time for all these characters. I wouldn't even necessarily think of Jerry as the star Mm-mm. in the way that you might think of another show with a comedian at the center. Yeah, you know? Tim Allen or something right. is obviously exactly. the main character in his well, show. Well, also he for, – for a character uh, who is you know as much of a star in the fictional universe as Jerry Seinfeld was in the real one, um, he gets humiliated a lot. That struck me, too. And, like, even in the episode where uh, you were talking about Will They, Won't They with Jerry and Elaine, that great episode where she says that she faked her orgasms with him and he keeps saying, like, you know, give me, give me, half, <laughs> give me, ten, give me 15 minutes. <laughs> give me another shot. What? Another shot. I want another shot. You mean? Yes. No, I don't think. Come on! One shot, I could do it. I know I could do it. Jerry, we're friends. We can't do that. It would ruin our friendship. Oh, friendship, friendships, manship. No, that's important to me. We won't ruin the friendship. Yeah, yes, we will. Elaine. No, Jerry, it is out of the question. You know what sex does to a friendship? It kills it. Half hour. Give me half hour. No. Okay, 15 minutes. I guarantee you, 15 minutes, I can make it happen. No. You're worried I'll be able to do it, aren't you? No, it doesn't matter. Jerry, I don't care. No, no, that's it. That's it. You like having this over me. You don't want me to do it. That is so ridiculous. Come on, Elaine. No. Elaine. No. That's not the kind of thing like a lot of leading men would not would not let themselves be put in that position, and they certainly wouldn't allow themselves to be repeatedly ca- characterized as a bad actor. 
Yeah, which absolutely. happens to him a lot on the show, where people are like actively making fun of his acting on the show. Yeah, they totally lampshaded that. Um, they they sort of, I mean, he knew, and he like, I mean, he's with three of the greats, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, in a weird, it, like that helps a lot because you know you can get kind of carried along by that, but also you see the contrast between him and um, Jason Alexander. I mean, Jason Alexander delivering that. Um, monologue at the end of the, the marine biologist the sea was angry that day my friends George I've just been reading this thing in the paper it's unbelievable I know I was just telling the story well come on George finish the story the sea was angry that day my friends <laughs> like an old man trying to send back soup in a deli I got about 50 feet out, and suddenly, the great beast appeared before me. I tell you, he was 10 stories high if he was afoot. As if sensing my presence, he let out a great bellow. I said, easy, big fella. And then, as I watched him struggling, I realized that something was obstructing its breathing. From where I was standing, I could see directly into the eye of the great fish. Mammal. Whatever. That scene is one of my favorites because it's, I think it's like the secret to George, George's whole deal. Like, he takes his own life really seriously. To him, like, this is an epic struggle against, as you said, people asking him to do stuff. Um, (laughs) And it's just never ending. It just keeps going and then you die, you know. Um, And you can tell he takes it. Like, that's why he's so good at that role is he's a good dramatic actor and he he attacks the comedy like a dramatic actor. It's really great. We were talking a little bit before the podcast about like, you know, all these different fans and kind of like fan businesses they run a little Mm -hmm. bit Mm -hmm. and just kind of how widespread Seinfeld is still today as a phenomenon. Yeah. And I mean, first I wanted to ask, did you did you travel to talk to people for these types of to some to some extent? Um, And I mean, some were phone interviews and things like that. Mm -hmm. But um, I did get really interested in this because I think it's um, it's evidence of. It's like it's like Seinfeld never went off the air. That's mm-hmm. what I feel like. It's like different from the way people are fans of other old things. Um, that's more like nostalgia. I'm sure there's a nostalgia element to this, but people are still out there constantly like doing stuff and obsessing about Seinfeld. Um, the cover of my book is um, designed by a woman who has this great series of posters called Sign Food, and it's all just illustrations of food references from Seinfeld. Oh, that's great. Um, she has the, there, and there's a surprising number. I mean, she has at least a dozen or so, and they're just super cute stylized. You have to see it. So look up Sign Food online. <laughs> um, Renee Shaw, she did an amazing job. So she does have one that's like my cover that's um, of Tom's Restaurant, but she also I bet has... You, I bet you can't keep the Marble Ryan stock. <laughs> <laughs> they're so great. They're so there is a marble ride. There's all kinds. They're so they're so great. So like that's one where she just was like she's an illustrator. She likes Seinfeld. One day she decided she would just make these as like a little fun thing to do. And she puts them up online and it goes berserk. Um one of my favorites is the the um this street artist named Jay Shells, Jason Shellowitz. Um Another fan, he told me he has to watch like two a day, basically, like always, um, before he goes to bed. And he decided to make a reproduction of the Rochelle Rochelle poster and put it up in an abandoned movie theater in New York City. Rochelle Rochelle. Yeah, yeah. It's a foreign movie. A film is what it is, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Rochelle Rochelle. Oh, Rochelle Rochelle. A young girl's strange erotic yeah. journey from a long to men's. Yeah. And he said, you know, I just thought this would be like a fun little like – Shout out to my fellow fans. Maybe a few people would take pictures of it at the end. Another one of these that, like, broke the internet for the day. Like, everybody was covering it. Everybody loved it. They went crazy. And then, in fact, um, the woman who – she was an extra – who played Rochelle Rochelle. She's – you know, they photographed her for the – for the poster, um, she's off in Southern California living her normal life, and her husband calls her, like, nearly hysterical. 
And he's like, your 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 picture is up in New York. And she's like, I, sweetheart, I don't understand what you're talking about. So <laughs> why don't you just email me and explain it like a normal person and I'll look at it when I get to work. So anyway, it turns out he had seen this online. He had been looking for – he had wanted a poster like this forever to put up in their house because, like, it's cool that his wife is Rochelle yeah. Rochelle. Um, and, you know, she hears about it all the way over there. People from – from you know, other countries are calling this guy asking for this for reproductions of this poster. People just go crazy with this stuff. This goes back to our mythology discussion and how they like keep doing their own callbacks, and that's why people love Rochelle. Rochelle. So one of people's favorite things to say to me when I say Seinfeld now is you know from Milan to Minsk, um, <laughs> you know because that's an ongoing thing that comes up. And she had no idea she was going to be like quote unquote famous. She thought like. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll see a corner of the poster in the shot. But she was just an extra. And there she is, Rochelle, Rochelle for eternity. Yeah, I love those stories in the book about these people who, um, like Rochelle, Rochelle, who were, whose lives were kind of changed in ways sometimes maybe small and sometimes kind of big by, by being referenced on the show, whether it was Jay Peterman or mm-hmm. Joe DiVola or, or Dan. I love the story about Dan O'Keefe and his father and the whole festivist uh. thing, which speaking of things that this morning on Twitter – Festivus July Miracles was trending, was a trending Stop topic. Stop it. This is Nine- so crazy. <laughs> like, it's crazy. If you start looking for Seinfeld, it's everywhere. That's all Have I Have you seen the you. new season of Mr. Robot? No. Okay, so in the new season of Mr. Robot, this is not really a spoiler, so everybody chill. Um, he, the character... You're ruining is, it, Matt. You're ruining it. He's, yeah, I know. I'm ruining it. Um, the characters, uh, he's like decompressing. He's sort of off the grid, and he, he has lunch every day with his new best friend, and there's a montage, and it covers a span of, I guess it's probably weeks. And at the beginning of it, his friend has just started watching Seinfeld. Oh, my God. And he's saying, I just started watching the show Seinfeld. Have you ever seen that? And he's like, there's nothing going on in that show. Like, nothing's happening on that show. They go to a Chinese restaurant. At the end of it, they don't even eat. Oh, my God. And then by the end of the montage, he's becoming increasingly into Seinfeld and becoming kind of haunted and disturbed by it. <laughs> and at the end, at the end of it, he says, he says... You know, the conclusion he's come to from watching Seinfeld, he's like, the human, he says, uh, he's like, the human story is a straight up tragedy, cuz. Whoa, that's amazing. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. I'm going to go yeah. watch and that's that like, right away. That's, and that's like That's like airing next week. So you want to talk about the continued cultural currency of Seinfeld. There's one of your examples. I just want to go watch Seinfeld now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Jennifer, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Engineering help this week by Dave Shermer and Athene Shapiro. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz, and you can reach me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. I'm Jennifer Cation Armstrong, and you can find me on Twitter at JMK Armstrong. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.